This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, December 20th, 2007. I'm Caleb Brown. There is at least one benefit to having a president of one party and a Congress of another. Slimmer budgets and slower growth of government spending. But as the budget battle rages on in Washington, there are a few gimmicks that hide a few billion dollars in spending. Steve Slavinsky, Director of Budget Studies at the Cato Institute, explains. The budget battle that is currently ongoing is over this omnibus spending bill. What this is, is this large creature that's cobbled together from a whole variety of different appropriations bills, spending money on pretty much everything the government spends money on, except Social Security and Medicare. This is education. These are corporate welfare projects. This is some forms of transportation, some agriculture subsidies, all packed into one really large bill. There's a variety of problems with this bill, just as there are a variety of problems with any large omnibus bill. Part of it's that's over 3,000 pages, and yet members of Congress had less than 24 hours to figure out what was in the bill. That's good for people who want to hide things in it, but bad for people who want to try to strip things out that might be damaging to taxpayers in the long run. The main discussion now is over whether the president should veto this bill or sign it into law. The reason, in some sense, we have the battle going on that we have going on is because the president has actually threatened and has followed up on those threats to veto a variety of these bills that are now within this larger package. And so the question is, is this good for taxpayers? Is a veto threat good for taxpayers? Uh, or is keeping this bill in, in the law and intact a good thing for taxpayers? I would argue that taxpayers are better off when you have a president who's threatening to veto a fiscally undisciplined bill. And that seems to be what's happened now. The original Democratic request for these programs was about $22 billion in excess of what the president proposed. The president really just proposed uh, last year's budget plus inflation for the most part. What the Democrats were trying to do is lump in more money on top of that. So you're seeing about a 9% increase in their requests compared to a 3.5% roughly uh, from the president in his request. Now, the Democrats have, seeing a veto threat on the horizon, decided to strip down their requests. They've now lowered it to roughly where the president was. Problem is, they're playing some gimmicks in this bill. They're actually providing $11 billion in what they call off-the-budget or emergency funding. Uh, A lot of it for Homeland Security uh, and a lot of it for pork projects, too. And the problem is that this might actually spur another veto. And then the question is, what's next? Now, the president doesn't have a problem with the emergency spending associated with Afghanistan, and presumably Congress doesn't either, but the $11 billion that you're referring to is domestic spending. That's right. There is emergency funding for overseas operations in Afghanistan, as you mentioned. And if you think about how the war in Iraq has been funded to this point, you discover a lot of it was through emergency appropriations. Now, explain what emergency appropriations are and why they're different from regular appropriations. These are spending bills that are called up, often without very little debate. They usually restrict the rules on what sort of amendments you can put on it and how quickly you debate and vote on this bill. And they're really, it's spending that's off the books until they're on the books, meaning unlike appropriations bills that say we're going to spend X millions of dollars on this program, the emergency spending bill says we're going to waive all sorts of requirements and restrictions on spending money for this specific bill, and we're not going to record the amount of money spent until after it's spent which allows you to violate a whole variety of rules that were put in place 20 to 30 years ago for the purpose of actually restraining the impulses of Congress and the executive branch. How likely was a veto threat from President Bush in his previous work coming up on his eighth year in office? You would have to have something with the phrase stem cells in it 
to get a presidential veto threat in the previous six years. That's right. I actually find myself saying nice things about the president for the first time in quite some time because he's actually vetoing bills and not just threatening to veto them, but actually following through on things that aren't related to, as you said, stem cells. Uh, And it's not even just related to Iraq either. He's threatened and has vetoed uh, the S-CHIP, the State Children Health Insurance Program, uh, a program that was actually created by Republicans, incidentally, uh, way back in the day. And there's also a variety of different threats and vetoes on smaller domestic programs that he's... uh, that have passed over his desk. And I think this is a good thing for a a republic as ours when you've got divided power between Congress and the the executive. Uh, This is not the same sort of division of power that you saw during uh, the first four to five or even six years of the the Bush presidency because what you saw then was kind of a more parliamentary sort of system, even though it was not a de facto parliamentary system. Uh, It was, in a sense, functioned that way. You had a, a president who was proposing very large spending bills, sending them to Congress, a Republican Congress was piling on more money, sending it back to the president, and he wouldn't veto it. In some respects, the bills that are coming out of the Democratic Congress aren't necessarily all that much larger than what were coming out of the Republican Congresses of years past. The difference now is that they're Democratic bills, and Bush would rather veto a Democratic bill than a Republican bill, even if the magnitudes of spending are similar. And this is why I think gridlock has been a good thing in Washington uh, just recently, is that you're seeing this uh, gridlock lead to an outcome that actually would have been better or is better for uh, for taxpayers generally than you'd seen in years past. In fact, you saw this earlier on this year in 2007. You saw at that point unfinished budget business left over from the previous Republican Congress. Democrats had come into power. They wanted to get all this budget work off their table as quickly as possible. So what they did was they put into place what they call a continuing resolution. Basically says, we're not going to shut the government down because we haven't passed our budget bills. Instead, we're going to give just last year's budget to all the agencies plus inflation. Once you discover that in real terms, meaning inflation-adjusted terms, government is at a standstill. It effectively doesn't spend any more in real terms anyway right. than it did the year before. That's what the, the sort of the alternative would be to uh, this omnibus bill. And so if this omnibus bill is vetoed by the president, the most likely outcome is going to be a autopilot budget, another continuing resolution. And that will then make for two years in a row, if it happens, uh, the first two years during the Bush presidency when inflation-adjusted spending was actually at a standstill. And it seems to me that this is mainly a product of gridlock. One of the unfortunate effects of having a bill that is 3,000 pages long is it forces lawmakers to prioritize their time in terms of seeing what is in the bill. What do lawmakers look at first in a bill to make sure that it's uh, something that they could actually get behind. They usually look at what we call earmarks or or pork projects. They're just going to have their staff page through the bill, make sure their favored earmarked project is going to be in the bill, and they're less likely to to take the time to read the other portions of this gargantuan 3,000-page bill. Uh, And that's part of the problem. Uh, A lot of people talk about getting rid of earmarks as sort of a budget fix, as a way to balance the budget. The truth is the money isn't there in terms of Aggregates. We're only looking at maybe one to four percent of a three trillion dollar budget. For so it's the most a red part. herring. Then. I would say it's in some ways it is. I mean, it's not in it's not inconsequential. However, it may not be substantial in terms of the overall aggregate amounts and dollar terms, but in in the functional sense, what this does is it sort of creates an environment where a lot of really bad stuff gets passed merely because it's got a substantial amount of earmarking in it. And of course, you've got the congressman who has limited time to look at this stuff, and he's going to find the one thing he holds most dear, and that is his pork project. And so he's going to vote on the, the overall bill, even though it may run counter 
to his stated preferences about public policy. And it's caused a guy like Jeff Flake from Arizona, the congressman, to say that this earmarks, these sorts of earmarks are what they call the gateway drug. It gets you hooked on just passing a bill through the process without paying attention to, to what's really in it and what it's really going to do. Steve Slavinsky is Director of Budget Studies at the Cato Institute. You can read more on federal budgeting at our website, cato.org.